done a lot of praying and a lot of singing this morning. We've got a lot of content to go in, so God bless this time in our talk. I'm going to skip past the typical prayer part, just FYI, and we're going to dive right in. Just a little bit about me, because I do see through the light some new faces. Um, I was raised in Kenya from the ages of 2 to 18 by missionary parents. Um, I'm currently studying to get my master's in couples and family therapy at Seattle U, and I've been married for almost 11 years, that's next month, to Chris, who is over here, and we have two kids, Kai and Mika, who are ages 8 and 6. So that's a little bit of my highlight reel. Um, Raised in the church, have considered leaving it lots and lots of times. Um, The older I get, the more questions I have, but the more sure I am that there is a God who loves us, who believes in restoration and reconciliation and repairing people and relationships and our connection with one another and with God and with creation. And so that is really where I am coming to you from this morning. I'm a crier. I'm going to try to do this morning with no crying, but I'm a crier. And since I don't preach every Sunday, I can get away with it. If I preached every Sunday, I'd have to really work on that. So... Our story today, which is in 2 Kings, your bulletin says 1 Kings, so, and that's the only thing your bulletin says about this morning. So if you're using that to take notes, you can addend that, that it's 2 Kings. And so I want to give you a little bit of context of this setting. And then we're going to go a little bit into kind of the process that we see there. We're going to learn about who Holda is, and then we're going to apply it to what's going on in our country today and the role that we have to play in that. So our main characters, King Josiah, King Josiah became king at the age of eight years old. His dad and his grandfather, who had ruled, were not godly rulers. They really led a lot of disobedience to God's law. There was um, a ton of destruction and sin that happened during that time. And then Josiah took on the reign at the age of eight, and he started to do this massive house cleaning. And this passage that we read, actually the first part of the chapter, Josiah is telling um, Shaphan, his assistant, hey, I know everybody's working super hard on the temple. The Levites who are musicians are overseeing it. It's going really well. It's like a great big work party. There's music. It's productive. We've got all this money that people have donated to rebuilding the temple. Go take the money. You don't even need to account for it. Like just go and give it to the people, pay all the workers what they're owed and go do this. So this is where Josiah is at. And then Shaphan goes to Do this wonderful work. I'm going to pay all the people, see how the progress is going up on the temple. When Shaphan gets there, Hezekiah, the priest, says, Thanks so much for paying us. Things are going really well. We're rebuilding the temple. Also, as we were rebuilding the temple, we found this ancient book. And so we thought you should have it, and we thought that you should go and give it to the king as well. And so Shaphan takes the book and takes it back to King Josiah. Now, remember I said that Josiah's dad and grandfather were really destructive rulers, and there was all of this oppression of God's people, and there was all of this destruction of the temple, of their sacred places, and and a lot of oppression of God's people. And so what had originally been an oral tradition, because that's how faith stories and stories were passed down, for the first time was somebody had written something down and hidden it, in hopes of preserving the truth that they knew because they were experiencing such oppression. So Shaphan takes this to King Josiah. Josiah reads it and immediately tears his robes and starts weeping. So these are our main characters, and we'll get back to that in just a little bit. So, and then our other main character is Huldah, and we're going to talk about 
a little bit more today because this is the series on women in the Bible. Show of hands, how many of you have ever heard of Huldah? One. One person. You guys, I had never heard of Huldah. And everybody's like, who are you preaching on? Who's Huldah? Women of the Bible? Aren't we talking about like Ruth and Mary and Esther? Like, are we talking about these ladies? No, we're talking about Huldah. So who was Huldah? Huldah was an older woman. She was married. She was not royal. She was literate. Actually, women were very responsible for the early education of their children. So literacy among women would not have been as wildly uncommon. Um, There would have been women who were literate. So Josiah says, I'm torn with grief at reading this passage. Can you please go and verify what this is? And so Shaphan and Hezekiah, so the priest and Josiah's right-hand man, go and they go to Huldah. And they say, can you please tell us what this is? And that's where the passage comes in um, on verse 15. And she says, this is what the Lord God of Israel says, tell the man who sent you to me. And basically goes into, God is really displeased because of the sins of your forefathers. And you're about to experience this terrible and just punishment coming. This is deserved punishment that's coming for the sins of your ancestors. And then she goes on and she says, tell the king of Judah, so she's a distinction between tell the man and then tell the king, that his repentance, that his sorrow, his grief at the sins of those who came before him will spare this current generation. There's still judgment, but it'll be held off because of the response of your leaders. As I was doing my research on this, because I was like, who is Holda? How do I preach on Holda? And I started with just reading this chapter. And then I woke up one morning, I was like, I'm going to read this chapter, it's going to be great, I'm going to get some idea of where we're going. And I started reading, I'm a crier, and I just started weeping reading this because I was like, I don't want to preach on this because I think the message that needs to be spoken from this passage is not a really great, gentle, like uplifting one. I think it's a really challenging one, and I would really rather not be the person to speak this um, But this is literally the only Sunday that I'm free, and so it must be meant to be. (laughs) I couldn't opt out and do somebody else, like Mary Magdalene next week. That's going to be awesome. We're in a couple weeks. Um, And the reason is because as I read this story, this is what I saw. And I saw the parallels to where we are today. Josiah is at at the peak of his career. This is like a new day is dawning. There were all of these dark things in the past, but Josiah has rounded this corner, and he's following after God, and it looks like things are going so well. Giant work party, peace, prosperity, generosity from the people. A new era has dawned, a new leader has arisen, following after God. And then in the middle of that, there's this discovery that they actually were, there was so much sin that had happened before, and they were still really off track. In the chapters that come after this, Josiah realizes he needs to step up his game and how much cleaning house he's doing. There was more work to be done, much more work to be done. It was not just about rebuilding the physical temple. There was cleaning out that needed to be done of other symbols and acts and places of oppression that had just been so embedded into the culture at the time that they were no longer as easy to distinguish. And hopefully you guys are starting to hear some parallels about where we are right now as a country because we have some um, serious history of oppression of women, of people of color, 
And this passage is speaking directly to the response that people who are following after God need to have. And this, this is a difficult thing to hear. And to share a little bit about my personal story and my journey with this, like I said, I was raised in Kenya. And so then I came back to the United States, and I have always thought, like, this is not really my country. These are not really my people. Like, they're kind of half my people, but they're also not my people. These issues are not my issues. Like, I grew up, I was the only white girl within hours of drive besides my sister and my mom. I was in, like, a highly patriarchal society. My dad got asked for my hand in marriage by multiple men. Like, I was very aware of my gender, of the inequality of gender. I was like, America's got that so much more figured out. And I don't get the whole race stuff that's going on in America. Like, I just don't understand. It's so different from what I experienced. And then, as I have learned more and read more books and been here in Seattle for about six years, and then I'm in this program right now at Seattle U. And one of the courses that I'm in is a, it's called a multiculturalism class. Um, But really, it's looking at systems that impact all of us. And one of my assignments is to make this this genogram. And so I'm charting out my family's ancestry. And then because I was curious, I was like, I'm going to subscribe to newspapers.com and ancestry.com and start digging into my family's history. Because I asked my parents, like, when did my ancestors immigrate to the United States? Where did they come from? And the answer was, so long we have no idea. No idea. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, those sweet little farms in Indiana or those, those stories that I have, those go back really far. And those start to line up with other times in our history where there was really widespread systemic oppression of women and of people of color. And so I need to dig more because I need to understand more of who my people are. Josiah accepted shame and responsibility for the sins of his forefathers at recognizing that there was this gap between God's perfection and his ancestors' implementation. He was filled with such grief that he immediately tore his robes and started weeping, and then went to verify that information. And as I've done my digging, what I have encountered in my family's history is that there has been, um, my family have been landowners in Indiana since the mid-1800s, like 1838, probably even before that. Even women were landowners. That has given me, those people hundreds of years ago, and their ability to own property has established access to things for me, that people who have been in this, their ancestors have been in this country for hundreds of years but never been able to own property, they don't have that same access. And that those are the things that are really impacting our country today. And it's so easy for us to say, like, that's political and this is church. But this passage is talking about a cleaning of the whole nation. It's God saying... Yeah, you're working on rebuilding the temple. But as you're actively rebuilding the temple, there is still this thing that needs to be addressed that is a deeper destruction than the rebuilding of a temple, of a physical temple. So, just to give you guys a little bit of context, because I think sometimes when we talk about kind of this historic oppression, um, we can also... In my journey, I have also uncovered so much about who God is in Scripture. 
And um, one of the things that I want to share with you guys is actually from Genesis and two different verses. Because the story of Genesis, where we often get some of our ideas between the relationships between men and women and what that balance of um, power and image of God manifestation, what that all looks like. So the first one is Genesis 2.18. And if you guys have heard of Eve was created to be Adam's helpmate. Have you guys heard that? Or his helper, his support? Well, that word, Ezer, that's used as helpmate, is used a lot of other places in Scripture. And it is almost always used in reference to God. And it is used in reference to God when he is rescuing his people from battle. So that helpmate is not this, like, docile quiet, sweet, in the background helper. This is a like fierce rescuer type of helper, which I only learned like a couple years ago. It's like that really expands my understanding of how God manifests in me as a woman. And it helps me understand a different side of God. And then the other one that I think is really important as we talk about this role of women in scripture and how it applies to today is Genesis 127. So the, war, the name Adam is actually not even a Hebrew name. And much of the word that has been translated as man in many versions of the Bible, many translations of the Bible, comes from the word ha-adam, which actually means the human. And so God first created in Genesis 127 ha-adam, the human. And then he saw that it wasn't good for the human to exist in one single space, for the human to be one. And so that's where we get the separation. And one of the commentaries that I read said, you really need to picture this, like that first being was almost, you could, um, some ancient text would refer to that first human that God created as having two faces, one looking each direction. And it's this whole unified. And that when Eve was created, it was this like cutting down the middle into two parts that equally, perfectly, together, represent the full image of God. It's not this imbalance and this power dynamic. It's this total, full, equal, necessary, beautiful oneness, unity, representation of God. And I don't know how many of you encountered things like that as a woman when you were younger and hearing those stories, but I surely didn't. And as I was doing this research on Holda. Here's what I uncovered. Many people count her essentially as the first person to declare written text as holy scripture. She's the mother of the Bible. How this story is told is that Josiah is the father of the Bible, which he is because he honors her word. But the first person to declare this, God's word, is a woman. That's hugely impactful as a woman. And as I did my research, 75% of the people that I came across dismissed that and said, Holda was probably sought after by King Josiah because she was just closest and he was really upset. And like Jeremiah would have been somewhere else. That's actually not the case. Um, Other research shows that Jeremiah would have been accessible enough and was at other points in his ministry. Holda was not chosen because she was the second best option. The other thing that people suggested was Josiah went to see Holda because as a woman, she would have been like softer on him. And he was hoping for like a more gentle hand. 
you know, and her femininity would have made her a little bit more, like, soft on the truth. I don't know about you, but that lady was not soft on the truth. Not in any way, shape, or form. Not in any way, shape, or form. And so as I read those and uncovered those, and I even brought this up to some people, and I was like, everything that I'm coming across is, like, dismissing. Like, she's a second-best option. She would have been soft. And I can find the ones that do say, Holda was literate. Holda was um, a truth speaker. She was respected in her community. She was an educator. There's nothing, absolutely nothing in the text that indicates that she was second best. There's nothing in the text that indicates any surprise on King Josiah's part, on um, Shaphan's part, on Hezekiah's part. These are the leaders of government. These are the leaders of the church. And they are not like, ooh, we shouldn't go see a woman. Or, wow, this is surprising that we're seeing a woman. They're just going like, yes, this is a perfectly, she is the best person for the job, gender aside. She's the best person for this, to verify this. And so they go to her. And when I brought this up, I said, this is really kind of blowing my mind. It kind of got a chuckle. I'm like, yeah, isn't it kind of crazy? And I, as I was, I couldn't think in the moment. And then as I was driving home, I realized, and it was a man who had said, gosh, isn't this crazy? And I said, you know, what I thought was, no, it's not crazy, it's heartbreaking. Because as a woman, some aspect of God has been kept from me as I've been growing up. And now I'm starting to understand this more full picture of God and how I and my sisters and my daughter and my mothers uniquely represent it. But it's been silenced, and what a loss to all of us. And there is now this wave of feminist theology that's coming out and helping us understand things. And this isn't a rewriting of scripture. The Bible's 2,700 years old. It was translated into English less than 500 years ago. We're just still discovering new things. This doesn't invalidate the word of God. It excites the opportunity for discovery of more fullness of who God is as we understand more of how scripture came to be in our language and how language impacts and culture impacts our understanding of it. Jesus taught with women. Jesus ate with women. Jesus talked to women of color. Jesus talked to women from all different lifestyles. Jesus loved women. A woman brought him into the world. Women wrapped his body. When he left the world, the women were the first to declare his resurrection. And in none of those instances was Jesus surprised that it was women. None of those instances was Jesus surprised that it was women. I also mentioned racism, and the reason is, is because we are in a position right now where on these issues of equity and equality, the culture is leading God's kingdom work, and that's a hard word, and I don't say it with myself removed from my involvement in the church, but we are at a time when our culture is making all this movement, all this movement. We see uh, the protests that are happening, I believe it's in Spain right now, about inequity in their justice system against acts of sexual violence against women. The Me Too movement, we see that coming out more and more. We see wage disparity being discussed. And on the race front, we see our culture, Black Lives Matters movements happening and, and gaining more and more support as they should. We see more and more of these conversations of systemic oppression happening and being led by the culture. We see things happen like the arrest in Philadelphia at the Starbucks, and then we see Starbucks' response to that, which mirrors the response we see of King Josiah in many ways, of that repentance of that acceptance 
of responsibility for the acts of someone that was not the person who's now making the policy, but acceptance of responsibility for that and a changing of course. The culture is leading where God's kingdom is moving, and the church needs to be a part of it. But we can't be a part of it until we, until we grieve, until we accept the responsibility that our, our religion has had in some of this oppression. And I, that's a hard, hard word, but it's also the truth, and it's what happened in the Old Testament. We see that happen in the New Testament. And a, a tearing of clothes and a grieving allows for wounds to heal. And what I wish I had been told when I said, I'm encountering all of this silencing of, this, of the mother of the Bible, I wish that what I had received from the room of men that I told that to was, we are so sorry that our gender has kept some of God from you and from your gender. Because even just acceptance and admission of this is what happened begins reconciliation. Um, a couple statistics that I want to share with you at the risk of being academic, but at the importance of showing that this is the world that we live in. And these are statistics from King County from 2011 to 2016. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but King County is one of the, has one of the highest rates of sex trafficking in the entire country. In King County, 84% of child trafficking, and this is child trafficking victims, are female. 52% of them are African-American. The general population of African-Americans in King County is 7%. But they make up 52% of our child sex trafficking victims. 100% of buyers were male. 80% of those buyers were white. King County is 65% white. We can't look at these numbers and say, this is not a race and gender issue. Yeah, it is a race and gender issue. On top of that, of those buyers, 61% of them had earned a bachelor's degree or above compared to 48% in the average King County. And a large majority of them are gainfully employed. And this is a quote from King County Prosecuting Attorney Vale Ritchie, who said of this disparity, so now we're talking about men who are educated from every employment sector who are white. And when you take all of that and put it together, what you're also talking about is a real system that values power and privilege over vulnerability. And that system has permeated every aspect, but particularly in race, gender, and economics. I sat down to take a break from prepping for this the other day, got a cup of tea, pulled out Darling Magazine. I was like, I'm just going to give myself a minute, because I've been like crying all day prepping for this sermon, because this is a hard message, and it's a hard truth, and I have been implicit in supporting some of these systems, even if... My background was in an entirely separate country, and I want to say that is not my issue, that is not my story. The fact is, is that I have benefited from the generations of those before me and benefited from so many things that I'm able to do because of my skin color. So I sat down to read this magazine, and the first article I flipped open was about art and expression in art, and I read the whole article, and the article was about instance after instance after instance where women artists have been silenced and their works destroyed and museums that were intended to house just art from women were accidentally demolished within the last hundred years in our country. So then I started crying again, and I was like, next article. <laughs> and I flipped to one, and it was about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and all about this group that was started by like 20 women four years ago called Women Promote Peace. And these women have now gained tens of thousands of supporters worldwide. And they are advocating that women have a unique role to play in stopping war. 
And one of their quotes was, women pay the cost for men's wars. And these women have gone all over, and they even met at the Dead Sea, Israeli women, Palestinian women, different religions, their, country, their people are warring, and they met together for peace to say, we are ready for peace. So then I cried again. This permeates everywhere. This is not just one place that this is an issue. This is a massive issue, but we also have to look at these passages that we have in Scripture and see what our God teaches us, what God teaches us about how we respond when we come up against these things. So, here's what we're going to talk about a little bit is the process that we see in here. First of all, we see that Josiah, he's receptive to new information. When Shaphan comes and says, I found this book, Josiah isn't like, oh, it's really old. It's not relevant. He's like, I'm going to read it. And he reads it, and he's receptive. Josiah would not have been that receptive if he hadn't already been tuned in to who God was and what God's truth is. Even when we encounter new information, if we don't have some softness of heart, it just bounces right off. And so we see that Josiah kept this posture of receptivity to new information. And you guys, this was really hard and unfortunate timing information. Like, imagine if somebody had just given you this massive set of problems, and then you've implemented all these changes, everybody's really excited about them, you're wildly popular, everything is going really, really well. You've got resources, you've got people, you've got power, this is great. And then you find one old dusty book, and you read it. I don't think my inclination would be to rip my clothes and start sobbing. I think my, my inclination would be skepticism. I'm like, well, I'm going to need to verify that source. What was their motivation in writing it? And how long has it been there? I'm going to have all these questions. Josiah maintained this posture of receptivity to new information, this pliability, this moldability, this tenderheartedness that is essential to learning more about who God is and how we manifest his kingdom in the world. So those are the first and two second things, receptivity and pliability. The third is that we see he does pursue more insight. He does. He seeks out verification of what he's suspecting to be true. And you know where he goes for that information? To someone who's totally opposite from him. Josiah's 18. Holda would be much older. Josiah's single. Holda's married. Josiah's a man. Holda's a woman. Josiah is a king. Holda has no real position of any recognized political authority. They live in two totally different parts of town. He could have asked Hezekiah, the priest, like, this was found, can you give me your interpretation of this? But we don't see that. That's not what was most important. It was Holda's word that was most important. Verifying new information with people who are going to see this through a different light than we are capable of seeing it of. And that goes back to that Genesis passage about God separating Ha-Adam, We have to see other perspectives to see the wholeness of who God is because one perspective will never, ever, ever capture it all. And then the fourth thing we see is integration into the whole system. So after Huldah gives this word, Josiah goes and he gathers all of the people who are at the temple, the workers, the priests, the overseers. He gathers all of the court and he gathers all of the people And he says, and he's transparent. He says, this is the information that we've uncovered. These are the implications for us. This is the course of action that we're going to take now. 
What wonderful leadership. What an incredible response. So how does that apply to us? I see three real primary roles in this story. There's the role of the leader, who's King Josiah. There's the role of the truth speaker, which is Huldah. And there's the role of the information transmitter. And that is Shaphan and Hezekiah. And the reality is, is all of us can play any one of those roles at any point in time. And it's easy for us to say, well, I'm not really a leader. Like, I don't own my business. I'm not the president. I don't, I'm not the pastor of a church. I'm not a leader. But the reality is, is that because of the world we live in and technology and social media, we all have this voice now that we never used to have. We all have the capacity and influence beyond what we probably are fully even understanding it, just as, as a society, as a culture. I'm not saying you don't understand how much influence you have. I'm just saying we are just still adjusting as a culture, as a people, as a species, to the fact that our voice can now go so far. And with that comes leadership. And with that leadership comes responsibility to have that receptivity, that pliability, that pursuit of new information, and the bravery to apply it and to integrate it. Josiah nowhere defines the truth. And I think so often we look to our leaders as the definers of truth. Josiah is an implementer of truth. He's a guide. He's a leader. But he is not solely responsible for defining the truth. He relies on people who define the truth. What's the role of truth speakers? Not to be swayed by power. The first way Huldah addresses King Josiah is tell that man who sent you. Now, this isn't meant to be disrespectful. She's not like talking down to him. It's not a dressing down. It's not an undermining of his power. What that is, because what follows in verse 15, tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says, I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read. God's justness is equal. There is no recognition of power dynamics in the kingdom of God. God's justness is equal. God's justice is equal. God's punishment is equal. And we are called to live out that justness, that equity, equally. She speaks the truth. She's available. And she also recognizes Josiah's role as a leader. And then she says in verse 18, tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord that this is what the Lord says. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become accursed and laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and ye will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I am going to bring on this place. Leaders have influence. Leaders have the ability to guide their people to peace, to being in alignment with God, to repentance. And we can see right here that God recognizes that. What's remarkable is that Josiah does it, and he goes and 
God doesn't say, because you feel bad and because you're going to go and act more justice, then I will spare you. He just says, your repentance brings about my compassion. Justice will still come. It would have been easy for Josiah to be like, whoo, I cried and now I'm good. Like, I get an out because I felt bad. But Josiah knows that that's not what the mission of God is about. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is about justice. It's about acceptance of responsibility. It's not about just justice today. It's about what's the course of history coming behind and what's the course of history coming after me and how do I accept from the past and influence intentionally towards the future for my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and those to come. And the last is the role of transmitter that we see with Shaphan and Hezekiah. At any point in time, those people could have tweaked the word, could have not delivered the book, they could have not gone to Holda, they could have brought back a different message to King Josiah. They had lots of opportunities to add their own spin or their own angle, but they didn't. And I think this is something that we all have so much opportunity in on a daily basis with how much information we take in and we put out every single day. Are we being faithful to God's justice, to God's equity, to God's equal love of all people in all of our transmission of information, in our acceptance of it and our transmission of it? When it's uncomfortable, are we seeking other sources of truth? When we are asked by someone who is following God and who we trust to transmit something, are we transmitting it honestly? Are we present? Are we patient? Like I said, this is not a lighthearted message. I really like sermons that are a lot more lighthearted. But this is also so, so important because God just... God is a loving God. God is a present God. God is a compassionate God. But God is a God of justice. And thank goodness God is a God of justice. Would we want any other type of God? I wouldn't. I would not want any other type of God. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality. How are we striving in our lives and every day to show no partiality? How are we striving to understand and discover the hidden books that tell the stories and the truths from the past and set in contrast maybe the reality of what happened and how are we responding to that today? Are we giving ourselves opportunity to grieve, to be pliable, to be moldable? Are we seeking voices from people who are different than us? to understand another side of who God is? Are we honoring the women in our community? Are we honoring the people of color in our community? Are we honoring the people with disabilities in our community? Are we honoring people who have a different understanding of who God is in our community? We need to be honoring all of these people because together we are Ha'adam, the image of God in this world. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And in Genesis 2.24, it talks about when a man unites with his wife and the two become one. Both of those words, one, are literally referencing one. Single, unified, whole, integrous being. 
That's what God is in the business of doing, is in reconciling all of these parts and in manifesting the fullness of his image in all people. This is what we're working towards. This is why Josiah acted even though his generation had been spared. Because we're working towards God's kingdom come on earth today. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful that you are a just and present God. Lord, we know that it is so easy to just press on towards what's next without pausing to look at what has come behind. But we know that you are a God who has an eye on all of history, past, present, future. That you are a God who was and is and is to come. And we are so grateful. And so, Lord, we ask that you would mold our hearts to be like King Josiah's, that you would mold our mouths to be like Holda's, to speak your truth, and that you would mold our actions to be like Shaphan and Hezekiah, to transmit honestly the goodness of your love, the equality and equity of your kingdom, the presence that you have in all places, your deep, deep abiding in all of creation. We thank you that you are a God who's compassionate, that in your justice, you also are tenderhearted. And so, Lord, we just ask so humbly that you would break our hearts where they need to be broken, that you would guide us to mourning and grieving where we need to mourn and grieve, and that you would lead us to reconciliation in all of these places. Lord, thank you for how your kingdom just moves and steamrolls, and when we open our eyes, we can see it in so many places and all of the world, sometimes in the places that we would least likely think we're going to see it. Thank you that you are there, that you are acting, that you are always moving. Lord, give us courage to be there, to be manifesting your kingdom on earth today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.